is Actually You Are a Real Runner with Jacqueline Riccio. Hey, it's Jacqueline with SystemsForSelfCare.com, where I teach you to consistently take daily actions. You can feel happier, healthier, more confident. Today in the podcast, I'm really excited. I have a dad, a teacher, a runner, a business owner, Steve Gardner. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thanks, Jacqueline. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. And I usually like to start with just hearing about what brought you to running. So is running, is that like a sport that you did growing up or were you playing basketball? What did you do growing up? Yeah, well, my, <laughs> you can see my basketball yeah. on the shelf back there. Yeah, my favorite sport was basketball. In fact, my two sons are named after my favorite basketball player. So uh, definitely basketball was was more important than running for me. But uh, when I was in grade seven, I moved to Montana. I moved to Billings and new junior high. And of course, everyone else was coming from five different elementary schools. So everyone else didn't know who was brand new. Everyone else thought that everyone else was just from a new school. I didn't, I didn't really know who my people were, but I saw signs that said uh, CX club or CX, you know, something after school. I had no idea what CX meant. And the first person that said hi to me or, you know, had any, you know, signs of friendship said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to do the, the CX thing. You want to come? I said, yeah, let's, let's try it out. Literally. That's how it began. So I ran cross country in grade seven, um, completely unaware of what it was before the first practice not even, I didn't know if it was a sport or a board game oh or, or anything else. I'm here for the CX. What's, what's CX? <laughs> CX stands for cross country. But like you so maybe, it's, yeah. maybe it's XC, maybe it's XC, maybe cross. Oh yeah. For country. yeah. So it was probably XC. Yeah. yeah. I apologize. Anyway, that yeah. was literally the beginning, but, um, I loved it. Um, I don't, as much as you can love running and racing. Um, but more importantly, I really, really grew as a person. And, and today I, I really think back on those, the lessons that I learned, for example, there's, there's one big one. Um, I never had a single race, not one. I never had a single race where I didn't want to quit during the race. Every single race I, at about the one mile mark, somewhere between one and one and, and three quarter miles, Every single time I would look for a rock, I would look for something that I could fake an injury on. I could roll my ankle and then I could just stop running. Every single race. I never had one race where I didn't desperately want to quit, but I never, ever gave in. I never quit. And I did not realize at that age <laughs> how that would come back over and over and over again in my life to just represent so much about, you know, what it takes to be successful and what it takes to kind of stick with it. These are like the life lessons that are so important about sports and why, like, like I always say, like, it's a, you know, it's running is cool, but it's like, what does running get you? And it's like that, like, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Overcoming something that's hard, knowing that you want to quit, but still pushing through it. I think it's so important for listeners to know that they're like, everyone wants to quit. It's hard. It sucks. It's not fun all the time, but like, that's a lot of life. That's a lot of like adulting. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, and that was, I know that you have a different 
background with running because I've, I've listened to your podcast, which is phenomenal, by the way. I love what you do. Um, but I mean, when you started out, you were run walking and, and you were, you know, just trying to do it for the sake of doing it. I, I was naturally athletic and, um, I competed for first or second at these, you know, at these races, even though I hadn't been doing it for long, Mm -hmm. um, I quickly did really well. Um, and, and yet with that confidence and that, you know, ego attached and everything else, I felt like I was a good runner Mm -hmm. and I, I wanted to quit every single race that I ran every single one. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. Did you continue running in high school and college? So I did football in grade eight, which conflicted with cross country. And then grade nine, I did cross country again. And grade nine was high school for us. And, um, I, again, did, did pretty well. Again, I wanted to quit every single race. Um, and then that was my last year of competing. The next year I did soccer, which also conflicted with uh, cross country. And I, I never ran competitively again. Um, and then I never ran really uh, consistently until about a year ago. So a gap between age 16 and 40. Um, and and here I am back at it and I love it much more than I ever did, but I also am much slower than I ever was, <laughs> which is great. Take me to like, so being a seventh grader or ninth grader running and in your head, you're like, oh man, I could fake that injury. I could quit. What, like, what is the shift that you would make in your head? Like, what would that sound like the words, like the thoughts, like how did you get yourself to keep going? and finish the race and also do well in the race? Like, what was that shift in your head? Well, it's hard to point it, you know, to, to pick a moment or a phrase that, you know, some self-talk that, that existed. Um, I just, every time I would think there's the rock, I could do it, but then I'd pass it and I didn't fake the injury and, Oh, there's a, there's a big hole in the, you know, a divot in the trail or something. And, and I, I would never do that. Um, but as I was thinking those thoughts and my, you know, my legs are burning and my lungs are screaming at me and I'm running as fast as I can. And I've still got more than half the race to go. Um, I just, I, I used the strategies that the coach gave us. So if, if I was in first place, then I would look at the next corner, wherever it was, keep my eye on that, wherever the bend is and just focus on that bend and make my approach to the bend as minimal as possible so that I'm not taking extra steps to get around that bend. So that's like a, a little strategy in, in racing and cross country. If there's someone in front of me, then it's okay. Where's their, their heels or their shorts. And you focus on nothing other than the shorts until you've caught up and passed them. And then you focus on the next set of shorts. Um, and so it's kind of this, as my body was screaming at me, my mind was really wanting to give in, but, um, there were competing, uh, goals, right? So one was to get out of the pain. Um, but that goal, those opportunities kept passing as I, I was also focused on my other objective. And there wasn't like a time where I could just say no to my body, or I'm not going to quit or anything like that. I, I don't think I ever kind of 
just overcame that urge. It was just that eventually you get past the wall, your body doesn't want to quit anymore. You're feeling maybe not great, but you're feeling you're not, your body's not screaming at you. And, um, and I, I generally, I, I was a runner that finished strong. Um, and so usually somewhere between that, that last mile where the last mile begins and the last half mile, that's the part that I kept thinking I could pick it up. I, I can pick it up. These guys are tired. Everyone around me is tired. And I never would until a half mile before the end of the race. And then I think, oh, I'm so late. And then I just, I really book it that last half mile. And I always finished really strong. And I always, when I finished would think, you know, you could have started a hundred yards earlier. You could have started 200 yards earlier. Look, you still have a little bit left. Your body's still going anyway. So there were these competing objectives mentally, physically. Well, I wanted to quit. I also needed to catch the next person or I needed to get to the next bend in the, in the trail. So I, I don't know. I just, eventually you don't quit. You don't fake the injury. And then eventually you're, you don't need to anymore. Yeah. That's it. I love that strategy of like, like picking up those small goals, even during a cross country race, but like those small goals of like, just get to the next bend, just get to the next person, just focus on his shorts. Um, and I think that that again is like applicable to life. Like there's so many big projects we can be working on, but like just focusing on what can I do in this moment? Okay, great. Across that. What can I do next? It's mm-hmm. helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's this hyper-focus that, um, oh, who was it? The, the first gold medal winner, uh, the first women's gold medal winner for the marathon. Um, and I, her name is escaping me right now, but she won the first several gold medals, like, and we're talking four-year increments. So she was, she dominated the sport, right. For a long time. Um, and that's what she said. She just, she hyper-focused on whatever the next objective was. So if it was a pair of pink shorts, she could not see anything else except for those shorts until she passed the shorts. And then she'd find the next thing that she needed to focus on. And so the very first marathon, the first Olympic marathon, um, she made it into the, to the arena. And then you have to run in an entire lap or maybe two laps or whatever it is. But she ran that entire lap alone because no one else entered the arena within that much distance of her, um, that first Olympic marathon. Anyway, that was her strategy and, and she was never shy about it. And so absolutely in life, I think that that happens, hopefully, you know, when you're, when you're feeling like your, your head's below water and you're just trying to stay alive and, um, and you just don't feel like you have what it takes to, to, to survive or to get where you need to get to, to do what you want to do, then shift your focus to something that is real. That's right now that you can handle now. And even if it's difficult, you can just focus on that and nothing else, see nothing else and then get there. And and then if you're breathing a little better when you arrive, then maybe you can expand your vision. I think sometimes it's good to keep options open, but yeah, when your body's screaming at you and you want to quit, find something that you can do and, and give yourself a quick win, right? Give yourself something to, to be proud of. Love that. Yeah. So there was a big pause on running in adult life. And then you picked it up this past year. What, what pushed you to pick up running again? Yeah. Almost as randomly, uh, as the first one, which was literally just, there's the, you know, a sign that said, come join us. And, and <laughs> someone asked if I wanted to join, 
Um, a little over a year ago, my co-teacher here in Singapore, so I, I moved to Singapore a few years ago, and um, not co-teacher, but co-advisor, which, you know, there's different words for all these things, but if you could consider a homeroom teacher in our school, uh, there were a few extra teachers and I was lucky enough to get a co-advisor um, in, in my advisory. So we were in charge of the social emotional well-being of this, I don't know, 20 or so juniors in my high school. And um, my co-advisor was a runner. And when he introduced himself to the class, and, and of course I was there also, he talked about how he runs every day for about 45 minutes, rain or shine. And, um, and then he talked about how he loves VR and he loves this and he's a design teacher, et cetera, et cetera. So nothing special. Um, and then we just, you know, we talk every morning because we have advisory duty and the students arrive barely on time and we're generally there 15 or so minutes early and we chat before the students arrive. And uh, at, at one point, um, I realized that if I got the right kind of earbuds, I could listen to books or podcasts while I run. And so I bought the earbuds and I went on my first run and boy, it was very different than my first run when I was 14. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, my body didn't respond quite the same as I remember it responding 36 years ago. Um, and also I was in Montana 36 years ago in very dry air versus, uh, hundred percent humidity in Singapore. And, uh, it took a while to build up to just a, you know, a three mile run be, you know, that took a while, which yeah. surprised me. I expected to begin with three oh, miles, jump right and, in. Like, yeah, you are. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so easy the first time. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> Oh, and then, um, yeah, no, I've, um, now I run, uh, not quite every day. And the reason is I am training for a marathon for the first time. So oh my gosh. I discovered that when you train for a marathon, you're supposed to rest in between <laughs> runs. Jeez. And I didn't, I didn't know that. And so now I'm not running every day. Uh, I'm giving my body rest in between the long runs. Um, yeah. So there you go. I'm not a very, uh, educated runner. I just, but I definitely get the benefit out of it. It's, it's a beautiful thing in my life. Yeah. Was there something, so you said like, oh, I can listen to, you know, podcasts and that's exciting. But like, was there something about hearing your co-advisor that he runs every day that you were like, oh, I should give that a shot. Like what, like why now, like this time in your life, or sure. is it because of what's happening in the world or like what? Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, you know, um, you, you kind of hear from my answers so far. I'm I'm pretty simple minded around these things. I I had on my on my list of 50 things to do before I die, which now I'm on you know version five or version six of them because I've crossed off so many of them and then rewritten the list and rewritten the list. But even from my very first list when I was 17 years old, mm -hmm. I had run a marathon, and that's one that has carried over onto every single new list. Um, and I've never even started the process of the marathon until it's like, yeah, why not? You know, if not at 40, when are you going to do it? You know? And, and so, um, it took quite a while, I would say the first eight or nine months before I felt like, okay, maybe I can train for a marathon and I still didn't start training for it until about a month ago, a month ago is when I finally downloaded, 
a training regimen and I saw what you're supposed to do to train for a marathon. Mm -hmm. I thought this is very different from what I expected. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, you, you start running longer distances so much earlier than I expected. I, I figured you would work up to those, but instead it's just like, you know, run three miles your first week, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16. And like every single week by very, very early, you're at 14 miles, 16 miles that shocked me, but, um, I wasn't giving myself rest days and, and these new training or this training regimen asked for for multiple rest days. Like I'm only running three to four days a week instead of six. So. Yeah, I know. I, my brother's friend, I remember him telling me that he didn't, he never looked on the internet for how to train for a marathon and was just doing like ridiculous, like hundred miles a week, like something ridiculous like that. And I'm just like, <gasps> you're like your body, your body needs to rest. It, it doesn't have to be like high school sports where you're out there. Yeah. And also when you're in your thirties or forties, like your body is going to respond differently. Um, uh, yeah, it's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Well in high school. So, I mean, we started cross country with two a days, literally yeah, right. we, we'd run at five in the morning go to school all day and then run again at three 30 in the afternoon. I, oh and so gosh. I was thinking that's maybe something I'd, I'd have to work up to too bad. I don't have the time, which I don't. Um, and so anyway, but no, it turns out that you run a day, you rest a day. And then after a long run, you rest two days and boy, what a, what a concept. <laughs> How's it going? How are I you also, I also didn't realize how slow you're supposed to run these uh, yeah. long distances. So those two things combined, um, rest and slowing down. I, it's not fun for me to slow down, um, but I definitely can run longer when I slow down. Um, but my body still feels totally tanked, totally just wasted at the end of a long run. Um, and then when my knee hurts or something you know, it doesn't feel right after the run. Usually it takes me the whole week to recover. And I only do a couple of light runs and then build up again to the same distance long run. So it's, it's going to take more than the four months that I have allocated, but four months was a lot faster than my original scale. So yeah, it, it, you were just about to say, how's it going? I think, uh, on the marathon training and I, I got to, I, I did the 12 mile run without any incident on my 14 mile run, um, for the first time I stopped the run early because of knee pain. Um, and immediately I couldn't, I could barely walk, which is bad. I should have, I should have gotten further before I stopped running, but it, it was too painful to, to go further. Anyway, I, I got to 12, about 12 and a half miles and, and stopped. And I really should have stopped at about eight miles. Uh, like the pain was consistent enough and not just not going away. And anyway, I should have stopped a little early earlier, but that was, that was a full week ago. And now I feel like I'm, um, yesterday I did a, a six mile run without any problem. And so I'll, I'll try again tomorrow on a, not a, not a 14, but I'll, I'll try again on another okay. six or a seven and then see how it goes. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's, it's a hard thing. Like the pain thing. Cause you're like, Oh, I gotta get this. It says this on my training, but then if you get hurt, then you won't be running at all, but it's a, it's a yeah. hard. Yeah. It's just, it's just recognizing the difference between your body working out the stiffness, um, and, and, and something that's really hurting you. 
And, and it's tricky because I wasn't feeling any pain before the run, no pain until about mile three and nothing like snapped. I didn't land wrong. There was no reason for me to start feeling pain. And sometimes I just spontaneously feel pain. And if I just keep going for, you know, a minute or two and it kind of goes away and this one just wasn't going away. And so I stopped and stretched it for 10 seconds and, and tried to, to run a little bit differently, tried to pick my knee up higher, tried all these things. But as I was trying these things, because it was such a long run, it was a 14 mile run. I was running further and further away from my home. And, and by the time I turned around, which was, you know, I turned around early because I thought this might be, I, I might need to, you know, stop soon, stop earlier than 14 miles. So I, I turned around at what would have been maybe the 12 mile mark. And, and that ended up being a really long limp home because it was, you know, two, three miles of limping after I stopped at the, at the 12 mile mark. Um, not quite three, it was, it was just over two miles. But anyway, yeah, sometimes it, it, you can't tell the difference between the knee is, is hurting, you need to stop. And the knee is hurting, you just need to do a few more steps and, and let it work itself out. <laughs> yeah. So what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. I think too, like there's pain that you'll push through if it's a race, like, well, this is a race. I, I'm not going to quit the race, but like pain while you're training, it's, it's a tough thing to work yeah. out. And yeah. 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 And all I'm doing is training. Right. So, uh, but I just didn't know if it was, yeah, yeah. I, I knew, I knew earlier than, than I stopped, but I also knew that when I stopped, it probably would be really slow getting home. And it was (laughs) so anyway, but at the same time, if I run smaller loops around my house, then I have to run really small loops and run a whole bunch of them. That's exhausting. That's way more tiring than running eight miles one way and then eight miles back. Um, so running 14, one mile loops is horribly. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, anyway, so what can you do? I do your method too. It's, it's really helpful for me to like go to get to point a and then turn around and come back. And I like one, one, I like right running the same route. And I like, I know like, Oh, here I'm at the one mile mark and the two mile mark. Mm -hmm. I like that. But I, and I agree that running loops, it's mentally harder. Cause you're like, I'm home, but I'm not really home. (laughs) I'm home. No, not home. Way harder. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There was a marathon I did a couple years ago that it got flooded. And so they rerouted the course and then it ended mm-hmm. up being four loops. And that was like, I, di- I didn't train for four loops. Like I didn't. And it was exactly that. And it was just like, oh, yeah. that was the hardest. It was the worst. Even, even the second loop you're thinking, okay, progress. But instead <laughs> of halfway there, you're thinking, oh, I've got two more of these. Exactly. Those two took a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I hear you. Did, so did you sign up for a marathon or are you going to find a marathon? Not yet. Um, Singapore is, you know, um, takes COVID-19 a little more seriously than, than some, than where probably a lot of the listeners, uh, certainly all my family in the States and, mm-hmm. and everyone there, they're very, very different environment compared to here. Um, which is great. You know, there's very, very few deaths here. Um, and, and there's just more of a, I mean, I I know you don't intend on this to be a political anything, but there's just more of a trust in science and, 
and more of a trust in in the decision making skills of the government here, even though there is there is a loud contingent that that thinks we shouldn't be so strict. But regardless, it's there's no there are no races open at this moment and there's no way to travel for us. We're not Singaporean citizens. If we leave, um, no, no guarantees that we can get back in. Right. So um, at this point, I'm training in expectation that that things will continue to get looser and looser. And and I, I trust that they will. By the time I'm ready, I think and I'm going to keep running anyway. So it's not like, oh, I'm ready for a marathon, but there's not a marathon right now. So I wasted all that time. I'll just I'll keep running until until I can. So but I assume it'll be right about the time when when I can. So we'll we'll do it. <laughs> That's a really interesting way of going about things, but I love that. Like you want to keep running. Like, so even if races are canceled or there isn't a race, you want to keep running. And I think that's really important. I think that was really hard in 2020. A lot of people struggle with motivation because all of the races were canceled and that thing that they were going mm-hmm. towards wasn't there. Um, but that like races can just cancel. They can be canceled anytime for any reason, or they can be routed. Mm-hmm. Like it can. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you said that it's like a hundred, that's very warm there while you're war- running completely. Yeah, literally a hundred percent humidity always, which there are places in America that have a hundred percent humidity, but it, it is. Yeah. I, I believe that. So I, I, I believe with some evidence, I have friends that were in Singapore that ran. And as soon as they got back to one of them's in Boston, one of them's in Connecticut, a couple in Canada, as soon as they got back, they just talked about how easy it was to run and how long they could run without their lungs hurting. And and I thought, I keep hearing, you know, these conversations, having these conversations with people, hearing these comments and thinking, oh, well, great. (laughs) You know, that's great. Maybe that is part of it. Maybe not all of my struggle is the 40-ish, you know, the 41-year-old in me. Maybe some of it is just the fact that Singapore's harder place to run um, but at the same time, it's all very flat. This is an island. There aren't mountains and we're not at high elevation. Like I imagine if I went to the Rocky Mountains in Denver or in Utah somewhere and tried to run there, I, I would also have a really tough time. So uh, yeah, but it's 100% humidity, 100% of the time. So that's just, that's what you've got. Yeah. <laughs> Tropical island. What brought you to Singapore? Well, I'm a teacher. Um, my wife and I both teach, and so we teach at an international school here. She teaches second grade now, and um, yeah, I was teaching um, economics and business to to high school students until uh, last year. So I, I taught through the end of last year, and then my wife and kids just started school a week ago. And for the first time in years, I did not go with them. Um, I'm I'm now doing the Ivy League Challenge full time, which is my online course that we may or may not get to talk about later on. But we moved here to teach, uh, yeah, to to teach at an international school here. Wow, that is yeah. So because we cannot travel <laughs> right now, and watching international house hunters has been like the thing, like our (laughs) evening, like just imagining life somewhere else. Um, yeah. And how did you pick Singapore and how long have you guys been there? 
Yeah, we've been here uh, three years. And um, once you're in the international teaching circuit, so we're both trained in, in IB, which mm-hmm. This isn't a teacher's uh, <laughs> podcast. So IB is the International Baccalaureate Program, which is, um, it's great if you're trained in that because um, there are thousands of schools that, that, that follow that philosophy, that teaching framework, but um, not enough teachers. And so we're both trained to, to teach IB. Um, Singapore is considered kind of one of the it, it is kind of the center of the international teaching or the international mm-hmm. education world. The United States, um, believe it or not, actually does education really, really well. It's a, it's a horrible misconception that people have that the U.S. is failing in education, um, which that would be an interesting topic to, to explain why it's not. But there are areas and certainly there are school districts and, you know, there are, there are real problems in America. But, um, but there's a pretty high standard of education there that people don't realize because they, they misunderstand what these international tests are actually doing and, and what, what is being tested. But anyway, America does things quite well, not everyone in America, but the schools that do it well, do it very well. And then Singapore is another kind of hub of outstanding education. And so a lot of international teachers like really want to get to Singapore. Of course, there are places in Europe that, that do education just outstandingly well, really, really well as well. So there's kind of this Europe and Singapore for the Americans and Canadians. Those are the two destinations that are, I guess, hot, that are really popular. And um, yeah, when, when we had enough experience and were competitive enough, we went to a job fair in Bangkok and, um, you know, at these job fairs, there might be 200 schools and maybe 600 or more teachers. And it's kind of like speed dating for, for your job. It's a, a real high paced job fair. And we interviewed with, you know, maybe eight or 10 schools. We got offers from most of them. And this was, this was our choice to come, come to the school and come to Singapore. And, and we've loved, loved, loved it. So we, we probably will stay here for quite a while. Yeah. That's amazing. I love that. So you, you were a teacher in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in America, um, interestingly, I taught one year in America. I taught, so I, it's <laughs> kind of crazy to hear this out of context, but I speak Mandarin um, quite well. Uh, I, I studied um, in college, I studied in a university in China, in Mandarin with Chinese classmates and Chinese textbooks and oh. wrote my essays in Mandarin and all that stuff. So I had not been trained as a teacher when um, I came back to America in the middle of 2009. And um, if you remember, that's right when no one could get jobs anywhere. Um, and I was in China and for, a, for well, because my wife was, or my spouse, my girlfriend, who was going to become my spouse, who's going to become my wife, um, she moved back to America. I thought we were going to long distance, uh, do the long distance thing. We did for a few months, it was horrible. I quit and I moved back to America with nothing. I walked into a high school 
and just asked if they taught Mandarin, if they needed a Mandarin teacher. And literally the principal was there and said, literally, we just did our interviews this morning um, and we can interview you like now, or, or maybe it was in, in an hour or something like that. And come to find out afterwards, I found out that they didn't like any of the people they'd interviewed. Otherwise, I would have been a few hours late, but they didn't like anyone. And so they hired me. I taught Mandarin. I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. But I didn't feel like that was a responsible thing to be a, a school teacher because the pay was too low. That's what, how I felt at, at that time in, in my life. Um, but my wife wanted to be a teacher. And so she was not finished with school yet. She was getting her elementary education degree. And I thought, um, if we're both teachers, we're not going to have enough money. So I need to make more money. These are the thoughts that I had. Uh, come to find out, totally not true. On the international circuit, you can make way more money than you spend. We save outrageous amounts of money every year. Um, and we live really, really well. So we, but we didn't know all of that. So I, I went into business, she studied education, but I taught that one year kind of as a, as a, as a bridge to coming back and getting my business set up and doing all of the, what well, I ended up, I ended up, um, teaching, uh, personal development and, and coaching personal development full time instead of teaching Mandarin. And, um, and then when I came back into education with my wife and, and we started traveling abroad and I got certified to teach and everything else, um, that personal development coaching training that I had done professionally for eight years turned out to be really, really helpful in the classroom. And, and so that was, you know, that was the foundation of, of my educational approach was building, you know, the, the students' beliefs about what education is and who they are and how they interact with, with the world and, you know, why we, why we learn things in school. So when I taught economics or I taught business, we try to tie them back, you know, as much as possible to things that, that students believed about themselves or should believe about themselves. And we'd have these, you know, these conversations. Um, and that was also the origins of the Ivy League challenge. And, and so it all kind of fed together. It all, it all went together. But I, I did teach for one year in America, taught Mandarin. Uh, I haven't taught that since, although I loved it. That was probably my favorite thing to teach, yeah. even more than business. Um, I love economics, but even more than economics. And, um, but I haven't taught it since then. Outside of America, they, they generally want native Mandarin speakers to teach Mandarin. So haven't taught it since then. Yeah. It's really cool to hear people's like career paths. And <laughs> yeah. I always like, it's just ridiculous. It's like, it's really hard when you're 18, like, ah, oh, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And also I have no idea what jobs will even be available, you know, when I graduate yeah. college or That's right. what will even exist. Like, like yeah. when we graduated high school and college, like the internet was not that big of a deal. And now here we are like on a right. zoom you know, you're 12 hours ahead of me or 13 and record like this didn't exist when right. I graduated. Yeah. So that's amazing. Tell us more about the Ivy League challenge. So I'm really interested in hearing. So you had this path where you were a teacher and that was me as well, left teaching and now you're doing your own thing. Um, what, what are you doing? Yeah. So, well, I mean, barely removed from teaching, but the last five years I've partnered with my schools. So we've done, I, I got my master's degree at Harvard 
And when I was teaching in China, um, I discovered how much reverence, maybe that's the wrong word, um, but we'll use it for now, how much respect uh, that that culture has for Harvard University. It's, it's a bit extreme, um, but it was very helpful to have friends and, and classmates that attended Harvard also, um, because I, you know, when, when you see students making life choices that you know they're going to regret at some point, these are kids that, that could care less what you think about them if you're their teacher. Not what you think about them, the advice that you give them. They could care less what advice you give them. And if you're their parent, same thing. They care even less if you're their parent. But parents and, and teachers realize, recognize right away that, that the choices that are being made are, are going to lead to consequences that are not best case scenarios for these students. All right. So I witness all of this. I see that my opinion doesn't matter. But I do know, I notice that, you know, the the older students in the school um, are important to the younger students in the school. So maybe my voice doesn't matter, but if, if, a, if a student who's a year or two older than you on that track, if they think the same opinion as me, if they say, you know, it's really important to get more sleep because of this reason or that reason, it's simple things like that, right? Then, mm -hmm. then a younger student is going to say, oh, that's interesting. I never get enough sleep. And they'll, they'll take it seriously. They'll, they'll actually have a conversation. If I tell them, you know, there's this really important neuroscience around your development and, and getting enough sleep and, and your, you know, all that, that is so boring and so irrelevant. They're not interested at all. Right. Okay. So it dawned on me at one point, look, uh, they don't care what their teachers say. They don't care about the advice that, um, parents give them, but they do care about their peers. And they care about people that are not quite peers, but maybe one step above them, ahead of them, those opinions do matter. And because these students really care about Harvard, I can, I, I have contacts at Harvard. I have friends that studied there and I have friends that loved personal development as much as me there. Mm -hmm. And I invited two out the first time. It was just a group of three of us the first time. And we spent um, three days the first time. It was just it was, it was tiny actually, but we did a three-day camp and we taught them, you know, look, the common sense is not common practice. And the difference between, you know, a performer that, that excels and, and gets into Harvard and excels at Harvard and, and gets out of Harvard, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to Harvard just because that was the hook for these students. It's, it's not the hook for everyone, but um, for them, that was the hook. If, if you want to reach that goal, you have to do the common sense things uncommonly consistently and uncommonly well. That's, that's the difference. It's not that there's, you know, 60 extra IQ points between the people that get in and don't. It's not, it's nothing else. It's just consistent application of common sense ideas. So we're going to teach you guys some common sense ideas that made a big difference for us. And then we will tell them, you know, the, the power plant doesn't just have energy. It, it takes resources and it combines those resources and creates energy. And you don't just have success by going to Harvard. You don't have, have success by going to any school. You have success by taking what you learn and using those mm -hmm. things to create your life, to create your success. So these really, really simple ideas 
But because they're coming from some a, a mentor, from a, a role model that they can, they believe they can relate to because they, oh, look, this is a this is a college student. That's not my teacher. That's not my parent. Mm-hmm. Right. Suddenly they're on the edge of their seats and, and it's, oh, I should turn my phone off an hour before sleep time because that'll help me to sleep better and that will help me to blah, 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 right? These, and, and we would find out from their parents that a month, two months, six months after the camp, they were still turning their phones into their parents an hour before bedtime. Unbelievable results, unbelievable results. So anyway, I, I invited those same friends back and then expanded. There were several others that were interested and we just did camps during you know winter holidays or summer holidays at, at a whole bunch of schools in China, in Korea, in Bangkok, in um, in different parts of the world. Um, and and yeah, that was that was wonderful all the way up until COVID. Uh, so in the summer of 2019, we were scheduled the whole summer in five different countries. We had a very busy summer schedule with lots of Harvard students slash Harvard graduates traveling to different locations. And I was bouncing around to make it to every camp. It's going to be a very full summer. And of course, everything was canceled. Um, And so at that point, I thought, um, this is a, this is a life-changing project. This is a, um, this is, this is what I was made to do. Like, this is my mission in life. Mm. Um, and it had evolved from let's do the uncommon, let's do the common sense things uncommonly well to become happier, to become more successful, to become more productive. We'd evolved it into, and by the way, here's these specific things that admissions officers are looking for. Here's how you demonstrate that you understand your core values. Here's how you become more authentic. Here's how you live your core values differently. Here's how you express that you're living those core values differently. Here's how you provide evidence by impacting your community in the ways that, you know, if there's a problem in your community that violates one of your core values, you go do something about that rather than thinking in your head, I'll wait until I'm qualified and then I'll go solve this problem. So most high school students, they, they think that they'll go live their life and, and, and be the person that they hope to become some later date, right? Sometime after they're qualified. Mm-hmm. And then when they're 30, 40, 50, whatever, they're still waiting until they're more qualified to go be the person they want to be, right? Mm-hmm. So we tell these high school students, look, when when I was at Harvard, everyone around me lived life as a middle school student or as a high school student, as if they were already living life. They weren't preparing to begin life some other day, some other time. They were making an impact as a high school student. And that's how they demonstrated that they authentically cared about what they say they cared about. That's how they demonstrated that they did have those core values. And that's how they demonstrated that they're a difference maker. They're a problem solver. And even though their sphere of influence, like the scale of their impact was small as a high school student, still, if if they diverted their attention away from 10 different clubs, at school and student leadership and sports and music and everything else. And instead focused on making a difference in their community because that was important to them. When that resume came across Harvard or Duke or or Stanford's admissions committee, um, they would stand out amid all these, you know, 30,000 applications from valedictorians who are also student council presidents who are also part of 12 different clubs 
who also did sports and music, but there's 20,000 more of these amazingly impressive people who sacrificed sleep and sacrificed fun and sacrificed friends so that they could be the perfect student so they could get in. And it turns out that there are tens of thousands of people in other schools who also followed that strategy. And, and Harvard and Princeton and these schools, they reject most of the valedictorians that apply, right? Mm -hmm. And so who do they admit? Well, I mean, these are schools that are a reach. You, you have to be a little bit lucky no matter how impressive your story is. But if your story stands out because you made an impact in your community, because you were a runner and you used running to, uh, to, to raise awareness for a cause mm -hmm. and you demonstrated leadership by, by really funneling your, folk, your effort into awareness for this and you used running and you, you collaborated with other people or whatever you did, you made an impact on your community because you cared. Mm -hmm. If that's what you spend your high school years doing, guess what? You really stand out and your letters of recommendation show and your essays show a deeper level of maturity and a deeper level of understanding compared to everyone else that believes that high school is about preparing for college, right? We got to work really, really hard because college is coming. No, we work really, really hard because life is important because the, your values matter now, right now. because mm -hmm. there are violations of your core values of things that you care about right now in your community and you are not too small to do something about it. You're 14. Okay. You're going to make mistakes. Guess what? If you don't start trying to make a difference at 14 or 15, when do you start? You start when you're qualified. Okay. You start when you're 25, you're 35, whatever you think you're qualified at that point. Then you begin, you're going to make the same mistakes that you didn't make at 14 because you didn't make them yet. You have to make those mistakes in order to learn those lessons to, to develop the problem solving skills. Mm. So if you learn them when you're 14, not only do you have a head start so that when you're 25, you can catch opportunities that everyone else misses because you've developed these skills. But at 14, the stakes are so small. When you fail, no one else loses their jobs or you don't go bankrupt and lose your mortgage or, or whatever. You don't lose your house at 14. You fail and you think, wow, what went wrong? What do I do differently? Who do I talk to? How can I, how can I approach this again? Only three people signed up for this thing that was so important to me. Was it a marketing issue? Was it a messaging issue? Was it a, and, and you can start solving those problems when the stakes are tiny, but you're still developing the exact same skills that you need for when the stakes are huge. And if you develop those when you're 14 and 15, then you've got it, right? You've got those skills. So that's what the Ivy League challenge evolved into from this, you know, really uh, basic personal development, we can make better choices camp five and a half years ago to over the last couple of years, a very refined system for the reason why you want to make better choices is because you care about university, right? I realized that we actually want to make better choices because life is really valuable but students uh, feel an affinity towards college admissions and they want, you know, ambitious teenagers want to learn how to get into a better school. Well, it turns out that living life the right way is the best way to get into the best schools. And, and so for me, um, I think that's wonderful. 
right? I think college admissions, as scary and as stressful and as daunting as it is for most people, for people who uh, get it, who understand that the way you stand out is by being as authentic as possible mm-hmm. to your true core values and re-engaging in life based on what is, matters to you, mm-hmm. that, that your core values make you important, not becoming, you know, so many people say, oh, well, that person got into MIT. So I need to do those same things and be that guy because that yeah. guy's good enough, but me, I'm not good enough. If you can switch that mindset and say, they got into MIT because they lived their core values as authentically as possible. And if I live my core values equally authentically, authentically, then I can also be competitive for whatever school I apply to. And when students get that, the whole world opens up because suddenly uh, you don't need Harvard to be successful anymore. Your path to success no longer depends on any university admissions. Your path to success, you, you begin to realize that, that you'll be successful with or without Harvard. It doesn't matter that much anymore. And that's exactly when Harvard wants you, right? <laughs> oh, you don't need us Playing anymore? hard to get. <laughs> we want you, right? <laughs> and so, you know, anyway, that, that realization that you are good enough as you are, you just need to bring out your core values and live them more authentically than you ever, that you ever dared live them before. Cause you wanted to fit in. You wanted to be cool. You want to be like the other cool kids. All that stuff is so scary at that age. Yeah. But the people who can get through that, who can get over that, those kids are, those teenagers are setting themselves up for an amazing, fulfilled, impactful life. And so, yeah, so it's, it's just a dream come true to be, to be doing that full time now. Yeah. I can hear the passion in your voice about what you're working <laughs> on. Can you give some examples of core values with students or maybe with yourself in your life, or maybe what you're teaching um, your own children, like some examples of core values? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, there are a hundred or more core values and and you can easily Google a list of core values. And one of the exercises that you might do is print up a list of a hundred core values and just read through it and what resonates with you. But what I find is far more effective is to take the students through a visualization. Um, You may have read the seven habits of highly effective people at the very beginning when Stephen Covey talks about putting us beginning with the end in mind, he, he takes you to your funeral and um, you want to listen to what people are talking about at your funeral, because they're talking about you. So what are they saying about you? What, what are they saying? How did you live your life? Right? What do you hope people say about you? Anyway, taking them through that exercise. So they begin to realize that um, probably the university they attended isn't even on Mm. the list of things that matter, but these other things do matter. And, um, and it can be any number of things, honestly, it can be social justice. Um, a lot of teenagers today care a lot about the environment, um, and, and about equity. And, um, and so there's, there are a lot of, of teenagers that care a lot about those things. So making a difference, um, can look anything like, uh, there, there was a student, for example, who their their school district did not take a day off for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. They, they had school on that day, the whole school district. And it was a, 
it was a mostly white um, school district, a mostly white community. I didn't know that anyone in America did that, but this school, the whole district uh, had school on, on MLK Junior Day. And so this student, she said, that's so wrong. And so that violated, you know, something that she felt really important about that we should co commemorate Martin Luther King and, and we should recognize that this is an important day for, if it's not important for you, it is important for some students at this, in this mm -hmm. district. And so she went through the entire process of raising awareness of setting up a, you know, a, um, all the, the entire process of getting that changed. And, and she had to campaign and go to the school district and, and get involved with local politics and everything else, but it, it, it worked. And, and when her teachers wrote letters of recommendation, they would write about how, you know, she led this tremendous campaign as a, as a 14 and a half year old. Um, and she made a difference. Uh, we had another student. Um, this is a girl who very interesting story. I could, I could talk about her for a long time, but just the, her, her core value was gender equity mm. and she loved economics and she was a, an economics wizard, uh, for a high school student. And she recognized that all of the textbooks were gender biased. They had, uh, pictures and examples throughout the textbooks that were male biased. And she said, what's up with that? You know, this isn't right. I know economics well enough that I can, I can rewrite some of this. And so she wrote a economics 101 textbook that was gender neutral <laughs> for middle school, right? Oh it was gosh. a little bit lower than the level that she mm -hmm. was studying in high school. Uh, but she finished the textbook with complete with pictures and the images were gender neutral. Everything was gender neutral. She, she got it. It was good enough that um, a, more than a dozen different schools in her area adopted the, the textbook before she applied to Stanford um, and was admitted to Stanford. You know, th these these students and, and there are again, there are a hundred or more different values that people core values that people might identify as they start to seek out what really is important to them. What's, what's important is that you take the time because it's very, very few people spend time asking what really matters to you, right? Why, why do I care about this? And, and to truly identify what your core values are usually takes some guidance. It usually takes some support because we spend our lives trying to be the person that we think other people want us to be. And especially in school, in school, teachers, even in even the best teachers generally don't have time or space to create systems so that the students can tell the teachers what's important in their learning. It's almost always, here's the project, here's how we evaluate the project. Even the best case scenario that's, that's inquiry-based and project-based, real-world applicable, all that stuff, the, the, the top-tier best-case scenario projects and, and learning plans are still external value-centric. Um, so in other words, here's the project. You decide this, this, or this. You decide how to do those things. These are inquiry-based, so you can approach it this way or that way. But in the end, this is how I will evaluate performance. In other words, this is what is important to this project and students spend their all their lives finding out what's important 
and figuring out how to fulfill what's important to the teacher, mm -hmm. right? And that's in a best case scenario. Oftentimes it doesn't even go that far. Oftentimes there's not the choice. There's not the real world application. And it's just going to teach you this unit. You need right. to meet the objectives and meet it according to the standard, et cetera. So students like adults oftentimes do not know what they care about because they spend most of their day and most of their lives trying to be good enough for other people, trying to be what they think other people want them to be. And so it's, it's getting underneath that, that surface that we're afraid, we're afraid to show people what's underneath the surface, but once we're willing to let someone in underneath the surface, we think that they're going to be scared away. And, and what we can eventually discover is that what's below the surface is also not us. What's below the surface is what we're afraid is us, but what's below that layer <laughs> is us. That's where our core values are. So we have this, we're afraid that people will see that we're actually selfish, that we're actually evil people, but that evil layer that's underneath our, our hard core exterior, that selfish layer that's underneath is also not who we really are. But we spend so little time because we're so afraid that that's who we are. We're not, we're not willing to explore who we really are. So we never get past that. So then we have to live our lives pretending that that's not us. And so that process of really identifying who you are at your core usually takes a little bit of guidance. It takes a little bit of effort. But fortunately, um, once you're willing to go there, you can go there. You can, you can recognize what your core values are. And then, boy, what a burst of confidence when when you know who you are and, and you know how to make decisions based on authenticity. You don't have to try to figure out what you should be thinking at this time, right? It's, a, it's an amazing you know, breakthrough for a lot of these teenagers. Yeah, and adults too. I'm sure people listening right now can relate to not feeling good enough or putting on mm -hmm. a mask to pretend that there's someone else. This is, especially if you didn't grow up <laughs> going through a program like this, this is something adults, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What are some books that have changed your life that you um, would recommend uh, listeners read? <laughs> I have, I, I'm a big book reader. So my list is long um, off the top of my head. So I, I wasn't thinking about this coming into this, but I would say, I can't remember the author right now. I read this book. I, I need to reread it. It's called The Progress Paradox. Very interesting book written by an investigative journalist that documents how the world has progressed so much in so many ways that we don't realize. So not only is the whole world richer, um, and not just the rich are richer, the poor are poorer, at, at every level, everyone is richer, even though the rich are getting richer, even sure. more rich, faster. Mm -hmm. But he documents wealth growth, and, and everyone says, okay, that's fine. We, maybe I buy into that, maybe I don't. But then he goes through the environment and how even just in, in 30 years, the difference in um, the amount of clean water in the United States and Canada, for example, has more than doubled. So um, a few decades ago, uh, one third of the fresh water in the North American continent was safe for swimming in or fishing. Um, and now it's two thirds. It's, it's two thirds of the fresh water is now safe uh, it's far less polluted than it used to be anyway. And, and then even like teen pregnancies or unwanted pregnancies and et cetera, et cetera. And crime, 
crime has gone down so substantially. Unwanted pre pregnancies have gone down substantially. Um, environmental degradation, as as perilous as we still is, and and we do need to do better. We're much better than we were a few decades ago, um, and and we don't realize that. Uh, so that's the paradox, right? Here's this: we're we're progressing, but we don't see it um, for a number of different reasons. So, for example, um, he he talked about how. Uh, when the city of Houston became the most polluted city, it, it overtook Los Angeles as most polluted city in the United States. And this is like in 1997 or eight or something like that. Um, he, he's, he documented that, I don't know, 108 different newspapers ran this story. And out of 108, every single newspaper talked about how Houston was now the most polluted. Every single newspaper talked about how it had overcome Los Angeles as the most polluted. Not a single newspaper talked about how Houston was less polluted that year than it had been the year before and was less polluted the year before than it had been five years uh. ago, but that Los <laughs> Angeles had cleaned up even faster than Houston. Mm. And so because Houston was getting less polluted slower mm -hmm. than the more polluted city, cities, it had overtaken the, the, you know, the terrible ranking as the most polluted city in America but it was actually cleaner than it had been um, in the recent history, in the recent mm -hmm. several years. And, and there are, I mean, dozens of examples throughout his book about how we, we get the wrong impression of how much we're progressing. And, and because of that, we, we mistrust leadership and we distrust leadership. We distrust all kinds of, of um, anyway, aspects of society. So that's a fascinating read. Um, if you want the, the, highly, uh, the rigorous version of the same text, read Steven Pinker's uh, Empowerment Now, or Enlightenment Now. Uh, he's my probably either second, either favorite or second favorite person at Harvard. Uh, uh, Sean Aker and uh, Sean Akers and, and Steven Pinker constantly battle for that top spot. Steven Pinker is absolutely brilliant. Um, but he wrote, um, he's, if, if you're in education and you wanna get a doctorate degree, there's two ways you either become brilliant and, and create this breakthrough theory, or you attack a brilliant person and you explain <laughs> why their theory is wrong. Those are the only two ways to like earn your doctorate degree. Right. And so, because he is so prolific in his, um, in, in, in his thinking and, and his leadership, his thought leadership, he's attacked constantly. So for people that want to get their PhDs, so he writes defensively. And what that means is to get to the point, you have to get through 24 different rebuttals that he preemptively uh, resolves before he gets to the point. So the book ends up being 24 times longer than it needs to be. So if you can handle that, read Enlightenment Now. If you wanna read the abridged fun version, read The Progress Paradox. Same topics, but Steven Pinker's is more recent and it's, it's better documented. Um, Anyway, those are fantastic. I love Sean Akers, I just mentioned, the happiness uh, um, advantage. Um, boy, there are so many. I love thinking fast and slow. I love outliers. Um, boy, so many, there's so many. I love, I love books. I love strong <laughs> thinkers, okay? Mm -hmm. I, love, I love books that make me, I'm not a fiction person. I, I just can't get into those stories. I wish I was, I really wish I was, but. Um, but I love, I love business books. I love autobiographies. 
Surprisingly, I loved Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography, Total Recall. It's like a 750 page marathon, but it was fascinating. I, I, I couldn't read it in one sitting, but um, it, it was amazing. Anyway, I love reading about real people or real ideas that, that I can apply. So a huge list that I love. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Um, and then last thing. So what are things that obviously you are a very busy person, you have a lot going on, um, and self-care is really important. It's been a big thing that I've been talking about, especially during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I know that for parents and especially for teachers, this has been a really hard time. What are things that you make sure that you do on a daily basis so that you do feel good and you can show up and be a good parent or be a good teacher or be a good business owner? Oh, such a good question. Um, and in, in week one of the Ivy League Challenge, I issue the Ivy League health challenge to everyone that participates. Everyone commits to it. And there are seven different different commitments. I'll just give you um, the first two um, because this is back to that common sense is not common practice, right? So if you can just, just nail your first two minutes after you wake up, it'll change so much of your day. So what I teach my students is that when your feet hit the floor, as you, you sit up on bed and your feet hit the floor, before you stand up, your feet hit the floor, that's your trigger, and you begin breathing. So don't stand up yet. Take your deep breath, your first deep breath, your second deep breath, and just begin to think, what are you looking forward to today? What are the big things you're going to tackle today? What are the challenges today that you're going to need to show up for, that you need to be prepared ahead of time? Um, so you just spend two minutes breathing deeply, and thinking. And then you stand up. So you you just, you stand up after thinking and breathing and you stretch. And literally you just need to stretch, even though for people who are not morning people, they're thinking, no way. I'm never even going to consider this, right? Just, just stretch the muscles that you can stretch. All right. Mm -hmm. It's best if you stretch your hamstrings and like full body stretches, that's the best because it's going to get blood flowing. You'll feel wonderful, even though it's really hard to do when you first wake up. Cause you just want to, you just, you don't want to wake up quite yet, but if you do stretch, whatever you're willing to stretch, just stretch for 30 seconds. Even I like two minutes, but even if you can only do a few stretches, great. Begin by stretching your body, move your body. Um, just tug and pull at your body and it will feel, it'll thank you. It will thank you almost immediately. Um, and so if you start your day and take, take about two and a half minutes before you begin your day with breathing with positive, or at least productive kind of design your day thinking and a little bit of stretching, you're, you'll be blown away. You'll be 30% more productive or more for the first four five, six hours of the day. And it, it will literally be lunchtime by the time you start feeling like normal production levels where you'll start feeling like, okay, now I'm not producing significantly more than I usually do. Um, It'll be lunchtime by the time that benefit wears off. So um, it really is, it's the little things, the breathing, the, how you think, what you say to yourself, your, your brain is a supercomputer and your self-talk is the software that it runs on, right? So what are you saying to yourself? What are the thoughts that you're thinking? What are the questions you're asking yourself? Um, how, how do you approach your challenges? What do you say to yourself before you approach them? If you're a cross country runner, or if you're a, a, 
a, a trainer and you're running at times, you probably have to talk to yourself to get yourself to perform differently because you're not happy with how you're performing. So you know how to self-talk. Now, can you begin doing that throughout your day? Um, if, it, if it feels awkward, can you do it anyway? Just because you know it's good for you? <laughs> um, all of those things are simple. They're so common sense. Uh, they're too easy, right? And when things are too easy, most people just let them go. But honestly, that's the key. Um, for me, that is absolutely the key. It's those simple, simple things. How do you spend that minute? How do you spend those two minutes? Um, yeah. And then there are, there are a few more things that, that I would add to that with more time, but yeah, it's the things that you know that you should be doing, pick one and start doing it. Yeah. It's easy. It's, it's like you said, what, um, common sense, but not common practice, but you can make it mm -hmm. common practice thinking about in atomic habits. He talks about the two minute rule yeah. and that's it. Like you could just two minutes, just start with the two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Tiny habits instead of the big ones. That's a good one. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Where is the best place people can find you if they want to connect with you or hear more about the IV challenge, the Ivy league challenge? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm on Instagram and Facebook at the Ivy League Challenge. Uh, I'm on TikTok. Uh, You're Steve on TikTok. Gardner 28. Yeah. Uh, so you can find me on TikTok. I I sometimes am more active than other times. I've, I've got the got a couple of of TikToks that have hit a million views. So amazing. That's exciting. But most of the time, I just um, yeah. Most of the time, I'm pretty boring. I just say things that I think are important, which doesn't do great, maybe 10,000 views or 15,000 views, something like that. Anyway. Um, and then, yeah, I have a podcast, uh, Ivy league prep Academy podcast, and I do a new, new show every week. That's probably the best place to, to hear more of me. And of course you can, um, you can get on the wait list for the challenge. If, if you've got a teenager that has ambitions to re-engage in life, I would say, um, sometimes people hear the name and they think, well, I'm not, I'm not hoping to go to an Ivy league school. So that's not for me. Um, but if you've listened to this podcast, you hopefully know better. It's the, the point is that teenagers are, that's a shiny thing to think Ivy league. So that's a great, uh, great goal for them, but really it's, it's anyone that wants to live life more fully, wants to re-engage as a teenager, wants to begin, um, being themselves and being more authentic. And so, um, obviously that's my passion in life. So I'd love to work with your teenagers, or if you have questions that you think I can help with, of course, you can reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook or, or whatever else. So I, I try to be as accessible uh, as I can be. Great. Yep. I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can find you. Thank you again for being on the podcast today. You are so welcome. Thank you. Thank you.